Welcome, this is The Professor and The Hack. I'm Hugh Rimmant and I'm The Hack. We are once again with The Professor, Peter Van Ons. G'day, Hugh. Good to be with you as always. Good to be with you. This is episode six and it's up and running. There's no doubt about it. There's the, the, the phony war is over. People can see the finish line and it's fully on. What's changed? Well, there's been a momentum shift, uh, but we'd been talking, I guess, about that developing momentum shift from all those years, if you like, of chaos and problems on the government side to the last few weeks of the campaign shifting that in the other direction. Having said that, though, I think that the debate was, if you like, a little bit of a grinding halt of that momentum towards Scott Morrison and the Coalition. They were so far behind for so long. Yes, the polls came back tighter, but Bill Shorten was perceived to have won that debate. I'm not entirely sold on that, but certainly in the minds of the audience that were there as undecided voters... At the very least, though, he bounced back post that debate. And there's been some problems on the government side since then, including with candidates and the like. So, so there was a shocking start to it. Bill Shorten just seemed sluggish out of the blocks. But that seems to have ended now. He's looked a little sharper this week. Yeah, he's pulled it together. And Labor operatives, you know, through nervous tension, I got the impression, made the point that, you know, get through Easter, get through Anzac Day, and then the real campaign begins as you count down in that sort of final three weeks. And... We've seen the first week or thereabouts of that final three weeks and he has looked more sure-footed. Yes, there's been question marks, you know, no doubt we'll get to some of that around things like the costings of his climate change policy. These are difficult issues for the opposition given what they say they are going to do in that space, but he's managing it more effectively than he had done. There are less gaffes, as I see it, so far at least. You don't want to speak too soon. You can imagine a gaff just around the corner, but it does look like he's back in the hunt in the sense that he's the front-runner, but he's back in the hunt in terms of not losing that front-runner status. And it hasn't helped for Scott Morrison that suddenly one after the other all these questions came up which essentially broadly fall into the theme of uh, is the coalition too much in bed with unpleasant people? Yeah, really interesting one this, Hugh. I mean, I'm keen to get your thoughts on this as well because my take on it is that it was a bit of a catch-22 for Scott Morrison He wants to be in the election to win it. He's not in it to lose it. Now, there might be operatives around him and people that are working on the assumption, let's minimise the size of the defeat. He wants to win. He's the Prime Minister, I get that. So in that being the context, he's in a catch-22 because if he's going to win, he needs preferences from the likes of One Nation and, and from Clive Palmer. But the minute he starts dealing with the likes of One Nation and Clive Palmer, then he's in the mud. And there's a perception problem, at least amongst some voters that would be traditional swinging voters or or even traditional liberal but moderate progressive liberal voters. Now, yes, the Liberal Party isn't preferencing with One Nation, but the Nationals are. And the Liberals and the Nationals are in coalition and also, obviously, the One Party up in Queensland as the LNP. So he's doing preference deals with Clive Palmer. The Nationals are doing preference deals with One Nation. It's all very tawdry. Uh, and some voters don't like it. But if he didn't do that, he can't win. But he risks not winning anyway (laughs) if the perception problems attached to those deals become the issue, and they have been a bit of an issue in the last few days. It's particularly interesting, though, in Queensland, though, isn't it? Because Scott Morrison made a virtue of saying no deals with One Nation, and then in Queensland, where One Nation matters so much, it is the Liberal National Party doing a deal with One Nation or parts of it, we should say, the nationals within that. It's, it's, 
it's a it's a weird structure up there. They've you know they've got this Frankenstein beast, the LMP, which was essentially not to bore people with the details. It was it was a creation because the state Liberals and Nationals had a problem. The Nationals in opposition would always have more MPs than the Liberals, but to get into government, a lot of Liberal voters, particularly in the cities, didn't like the idea of a national premier, so therefore they thought, well, let's merge into one party. The leader will invariably probably be more national than Liberal, but let's bring it together because then we don't suffer that perception problem. At the federal level, what it's meant is that you become an LMP Member of Parliament, but then you choose which party room you're going to sit in, the Nats or the Libs. Under the Constitution up in the LNP in Queensland, it is regarded, technically speaking, under Section 3A as a subset, or as their wording is, quote, a division of the Liberal Party of Australia, which means technically any LNP member up there is technically under the Constitution part of the Liberal Party of Australia. Scott Morrison tells us that the Liberal Party aren't going to preference one nation, but people who identify as nationals in the federal parliament from the LNP are preferencing One Nation. That's your point. Even though they're part of a Liberal division. Exactly. So it's, it's, it's messy because Scott Morrison says, oh, no, the Nats can do what they want. They're a separate party. Now, that's its own problem, I think, because how can you be in a formal coalition and have the Nationals saying our values align with uh, One Nation so we're going to do some deals there or our policies do, uh, whereas the Liberals say, well, our values don't align with them so we consider they have to get put not last but certainly behind Labor on the how-to-vote card. Well... This is a mess, you know, and it's so hard how much to sell. Is it a reality that people, particularly in the southern states, will decide, who may be natural liberals, will decide not to vote for the liberals because of a perceived association that is too close with people like One Nation? Well, I think it's a real concern for them. It's hard to really know for sure until we see the results, just how many people do end up potentially feeling that way. The evidence that we've got which is the most brutal evidence from doing deals with somebody like One Nation, is out of Western Australia. Colin Barnett, when he was trying to run for re-election, he'd been there for eight years, he was trying to get a third term. Uh, the organisation, and he wasn't happy about it, they did a deal, a preference deal with One Nation, and at least according to former Premier Barnett, he believes that was a huge factor in just how bad a landslide he faced. Now, he was going to lose that election anyway, but the argument is that a lot of Liberal voters didn't like it. Uh, And your point about the further south you go is that the assumption federally is that Victorian Liberal voters in particular won't like preference deals with One Nation or perhaps even Clive Palmer in the case of the Liberal Party as well. So it's really hard to know for sure just how much of a turn off it might be for some voters. Clearly, though, Liberal strategists and national strategists have decided whatever the potential turn off Uh, It's the lesser of evils. It's worth having a crack and doing the deal. Uh, Well, the National Party in particular, it makes more sense for them. Well, yes, sorry, I should say that with One Nation, the Liberals have done it with Clive Palmer and decided it's worth doing it. Uh, They decided it wasn't worth doing it with One Nation probably because of the WA experience when the Liberals over there did a deal with One Nation because, of course, they're not in a formal coalition in WA with the Nationals. So it, it does look strange. I voted early. I went down. I thought, let's get this out of the way. Voted. It's not going to get easy. I voted early. Wow. Um, <laughs> and, I, I, and, and I live in New South Wales. So there I had the New South Wales um, how to vote uh, material from all the parties. I collected from all the parties. And, and there's the Liberal has got at number two on the Senate seat because it's a statewide decision of the division. Uh, that the United Australia Party, Clive Palmer, in the view of the Liberal Party of Australia and New South Wales, the second best option for this nation is Clive Palmer. (laughs) It is very bizarre to see it 
it tells you how much they want those preferences in the lower house because, of course, that's the quid pro quo. Clive Palmer gets exactly what you described. He gets the second preference from the Liberal Party in the Senate. He, of course, is running in the Senate in Queensland, not in New South Wales where you voted, but he gets that benefit right around the country, so it helps him in Queensland and it potentially means that a couple of other of his upper house candidates get up as well, giving him a real power block in the Senate. That's what he gets out of it. What the Liberal Party gets out of it is in the lower house, Clive Palmer's party will preference the Liberal Party. And the hope is that if he gets anywhere between 3 and 10% of the vote in various seats, and it can be higher in some Queensland seats, that there will be a, a disproportionate flow of preferences towards the Liberals because of that. Now, there are a few more inbuilt assumptions about this. You don't want to get too cephologist about this, but there's also the issue of how many Clive Palmer how to vote cards are being handed out in these important electorates around the country and how many booths within these electorates. Because he doesn't exactly have a massive volunteer base. He's not a grassroots movement. Although he does have a lot of money, so he might have paid people handing these how-to-vote cards out. But is that his priority? We know that the Liberal Party, as a major party, will have people handing out their how-to-vote cards right around the country, including therefore their Senate how-to-vote cards, so therefore Clive Palmer's benefit is obvious. For the Liberals, though, they need Clive Palmer candidates handing out how-to-vote cards in the lower house. And here's an interesting one for you. And this is a really funny point, which uh, we've done tonight without aging this discussion on 10. A Liberal Party volunteer in the seat of Dunkley in Victoria, we also have a picture of that same Liberal volunteer wearing a Clive Palmer T-shirt handing out for Clive Palmer. Now, it doesn't look good for the Liberal Party, but the reason they're doing that is because they want to make sure at these pre-polling booths that the Clive Palmer handout is happening with the Liberal Party ranked number two because they want those preference flows. If Clive Palmer doesn't bother to populate the booth, they don't get the advantage from the So Liberals are dressing up as United Australia Party volunteers. That is exactly right. And it doesn't look good, but that's why it happens. Fascinating. Now, it's been a very tough few days for One Nation We talk about them in terms of the attractiveness of their preference flows, suppose. That's at least what the National Party thinks. But they're having a hell of a time. We've got Pauline Hanson in tears. Uh, She's losing candidates. Uh, She's losing relevance in many ways and with the rise of Clive. So so what is, you know, the fate likely to be for one nation at this election? Well, it may not be very good at this election. Pauline herself is up for re-election at the next election. You know, being a half-Senate election, she got a full term in 2016, so she'll be up at the next election. She'll probably be re-elected, assuming that she wants to be because of her personal following. But it doesn't look necessarily like her personal brand in the wake of all these controversies is enough to get her candidates over the line, both in the wake of the controversies and the rise and rise of the United Australia Party and, of course, the fact that there isn't a preference deal between the Liberals and One Nation, even if there is one with the Nationals. So it's not good for her, but I've got a suggestion, far be it from me to offer free political advice to Pauline Hanson. But <laughs> you could charge yeah, her this she, She's got all these guys around her that are causing problems. It's not just Steve Dixon, but there was another fellow up in Queensland as well. She's crying about it uh, in that interview that she gave. Why doesn't she surround herself with women? I mean, it seems like the blokes constantly let her down and it's not just these lewd examples with strip clubs and the like, but... You look at the defections within her party. I mean, David Oldfield started the ball rolling when he defected eons ago in the first incarnation of Pauline Hanson, but we've seen it with Burston, we've seen it with Fraser Anning. All these guys are causing her grief and she's crying about how 
badly she's treated. Well, Pauline Hanson, if you're listening to this podcast, my advice would be fix the gender balance in Pauline Hanson's One Nation, surround yourself with more women, and maybe you'd not only be helping the gender balance of the parliament, but you might avoid all these blokes causing you grief that you don't need. Women are more loyal, are they? Well, I don't know about that. I guess I'm making a slightly flippant point, but she might as well give it a crack, don't you think? Well, Fraser Anning, I don't think, quite made it to the floor of the parliament before he'd uh, touched the party. So thank you very much. He got 19 votes. Good enough. He's in the House. So, or he's in the Senate. So I'm really intrigued by this business of this phenomenon that's existed now for a few elections, which is usually Queensland-generated, is this notion of the outsider candidate. Mm. And so Clive obviously was around you know, a couple of elections back, he's now back, One Nation is in it. Is there room for an as- more than one ascendant kind of outsider party? Yeah, look, I mean, there is room for more than one, but maybe not more room than for one on either side of the political divide. So at most you could perhaps have three. You could have the left-wing version, the Greens, the right-wing version, whatever that is. You know, you've got various contenders for that at the moment, which I think is your point. And maybe there is room for a true centrist party. I mean, once upon a time it was the Australian Democrats, of course, but the Centre Alliance are trying to fill that spot now, the remnants of the Nick Xenophon party. that They are essentially in the centre. We'll see how they go at the election. Not much talk about them. People like Rebecca Sharkey are going to get up in the lower house. How do they do in the Senate? We'll find out. Uh, South Australia's their best shot. No surprise there. That, of course, is Xenophon's home state as well as where the Democrats essentially originated from as well. But on the right of politics, there is definitely not enough room for the various forces, you know, Pauline Hanson's One Nation, Clive Palmer, Corey Bernardi's attempt with the Australian Conservatives. They've got the best name. You'd think that the Australian Conservatives would be where they sort of should coalesce, but it's One Nation that are stealing the march up till now and, of course, Clive Palmer throwing money at the problem he might be taking away from them as well. So it is very fractured on the right. Were there one truly viable right-wing Party, right of the Liberal Party and the National Parties, I mean, it would do okay. You know, it would be as viable a force as the Greens. They're a very significant force on the left. The problem is they just always fracture. You know, I, I don't mean to be too unpleasant about this, but there's a lot of nuttiness that goes on. And for some reason on the left, there's a fair bit of nuttiness there too, let me be clear. But it seems to sort of get pushed all into the one bag Uh, and you've got the Greens. You don't have other splinter parties that seem to get in the road of that. So the Greens have their problems in their organisational... And the New South Wales Greens splintered. Absolutely, but it doesn't seem to then result in electoral problems for them in terms of other offshoot parties. You do have some defections and you do have some political failures because of it, but you don't seem to see the fracturing in a representative sense that you do on the right. So the the right is the... uh is the unstable element. Which is funny because it didn't used to be that case. It used to be that, yep, the Liberals and the Nationals, they take up that space and it was Labor that was originally dealing with the fact that, oh, you've got the Democrats, even though Don Chip was originally a Liberal, he kind of was, the Democrats very quickly started stealing space from from Labor more so than the Liberals and then certainly the Greens. You know, they started to pose a real problem for Labor, including stealing inner city seats. They're still doing that. Uh, But now suddenly on the right, you've got not so much an electoral threat they tend to face more of an electoral threat in the lower house from, uh, you know, conservative independence in country areas, uh, but in the upper house and just in a fraction of their vote via preferences, which always bleed away a little bit when that happens, that's where the real threat to the Liberal and National parties is on the right. 
If you want news delivered differently... Rebel Wilson is co-hosting the show tonight. It's confusing, Harry, because I like, I'm also blonde and white. So. Uh, the project <laughs> is where it's at. Tomorrow is the National Day of Action Against Bullying and Violence. If it's going down... What the hell is going on? We're breaking it down. You go so far as to say that Facebook have destroyed democracy? We need to go back to MySpace, all of us. Yeah. <laughs> it's the news tuned to a different beat. Good times, Carrie. Good times. The Project, weeknights on 10. Welcome back. This is The Professor and The Hack, episode six. And uh, PVO, you've made the point that uh, if you want to know how they're thinking, look at where they're going, the leaders. What can we say about where Scott Morrison and Bill Shorten in particular are travelling to give us an indication as to how they think they're going? Yeah, a a few interesting points about their travel plans over the first three weeks of the campaign. The most amount of time that they spend in areas tells us something. Uh, And... You look at, let's, well, let's start with Bill Shorten. Bill Shorten has spent most of his time in Victoria. Now, he's travelled everywhere. He has spent time in every state. He hasn't spent nearly as much time in Queensland, as you might expect. Neither, for that matter, has Scott Morrison. I suspect that's because in the final couple of weeks they're planning to blitz Queensland as a key state. That'll be the run home. Absolutely. But so far, Bill Shorten has been trying to shore up those seats that have long been assumed to be his from the Liberal list and that's in his home state of Victoria. It is his home state, so it makes sense that he spends more time there anyway, but also there are pick-up seats in the Liberal column that he believes he can get there. Certainly Dunkley and Chisholm throw in Karangamite, Latrobe, Greg Hunt's seat of Flinders. They think that the Speaker's seat of Casey's one that they can grab. Uh, There's others as well that are in the mix there. So Victoria has been a real battleground for him, and that's been the one that he's really stayed at. When you look at Scott Morrison, he spent most of his time in New South Wales. Now, that's at one level not surprising. It's his home state and it's the biggest state in the Commonwealth. But it's also interesting because he needs to spend a lot of time in New South Wales because once upon a time it looked like there were a host of New South Wales seats that were a problem. Ever since the New South Wales state election, there's been a view that the federal libs can copy Gladys Berejiklian and do quite well in New South Wales. So he spent a lot of time there trying to shore that up and yes, just So like, which specific seats are the ones there? Is he looking at, at seats that he's hoping to win, like Lindsay, or is he spending... A bit of time in Lindsay, but then also in Reid, mm. where he really wants to hold off Sam Crosby, the Labor candidate, with the retirement of Craig Laundie, they weren't sure they could hold that seat. So he's that's protecting a seat. Protecting a seat. Has. So think of it this way. He's, and I'm going to get to, this is exactly where you're going with this, Hugh. He's got 74 seats and he wants to try to hold them all. Now, he's got problems in Victoria. He spent some time in Victoria, not as much as Bill Shorten because he hopes to win them off him. But in New South Wales, he needs to not only hold the line in seats like Reid, but then he needs to pick up a seat like Lindsay, which he has spent time in as well. That's where he started his campaign. This is based in Penrith and far western Sydney? Absolutely. The Total seat swing seat. Jackie Kelly used to hold it through the Howard era and then Labor got it back with Bradbury, uh, not Stephen Bradbury, David Bradbury, and, uh, and then it's gone between the two sides since then. And Labor's candidate, Emma Hassar, is not running at this election. She won at the previous 2016 election. There were some controversies and she's stepped out of politics now. So Liberals think they can get that. And that's within New South Wales where a lot of time has been spent by the Prime Minister. The state where he spent the second most time is Tasmania. There's only five seats in Tasmania, but three of them, particularly two of them, but as many as three of them, are winnable for the government. They're winnable for the coalition. He has spent the second most time in the smallest state, quite isolated down south, because he hopes to pick up seats there. 
Now, that might change. If we don't see Scott Morrison spending much time in Tasmania in the last two weeks, that tells us that they've gone into save the furniture mode. We can't pick up Labor seats in Tassie anymore. We accept that. We're now just holding on for for an honourable defeat. So to me, in terms of the way that they traverse the country, it's been really interesting up till now to say, yep, Bill Shorten going after Victoria, Scott Morrison going after New South Wales and on the offensive in Tasmania. Anyone listening should watch the last two weeks. Do we ever see Scott Morrison in Tassie again? If we never see him in Tassie again, we know that he or at least the strategists who send him around the country, don't think he can win. So there's two, there's two questions about that. So one of them is uh, how much does a leader going to a place actually work in terms of delivering <laughs> those seats? Look, good, good question. Look, it, it, it's at the margins, to be honest. I mean, yes, it gives the national attention, but ultimately most lower house sandbagging of seats is about grassroots campaigning. You know, it's the money spent locally in the local press with the handing out uh, at the pre-polls as well as then on election day, as well as the door knocking and the telephone canvassing and, of course, the name recognition or the quality of the local candidate. These are the things that really help. But then I guess it's just like a bit of a, it's like a, a flu shot or or a little bit of a little bit of an injection of some a bit of a barocca in your water. Yeah, that's it. You know, you you sort of get a little bit of added spice when the leader swings. And through. you got you got to get a bit more attention on the front page of the local regional paper you or whatever. Certainly it are. Is. Yeah. You certainly are. So all of that adds up to to help. I guess would be the way to put it. So what do the political parties know, and how do they know it? That gives them such an acute sense they would believe, where they go, you know what. Launceston's in play. Let's quickly get down uh, there. Or, hang on, forget Launceston. We've got to go to the outer suburbs of Adelaide. It's their rolling track polling. So I don't want to put uh, listeners to sleep, but I, I find this fascinating. I find it fascinating. Maybe what that says more. Maybe that says we more are about us. Complete nerds. Uh, they have, both parties do this. It's, it's called rolling track polling. It's their internal polling. And they have a certain number of target seats. It can be as low as 15. It can be as high as 35. And it varies and it goes up and down depending on cost and depending on targeted seats. And what it is is it's a five-day track where they can divvy those numbers up in all sorts of ways. They can give you the overall track for where you're trending nationally. They can look at individual seats. They don't necessarily do every seat every night, but they'll do a mix. And so what happens is you get guidance. So they will throw seats into the track which they think are either coming into play or that they get a bit of a sense might be in the mix and then they'll build a picture, and if they want to get a really good picture, they'll keep some key seats in the track every night. I and want to know about what the track is, though, because okay, they, sorry, oh, what, do, they have, do they have a small group of people they keep turning to? Are you changing your mind? Or, or no, no, they, they go to they've got they use their database systems which track voters and therefore give them a sense of who are swinging voters. And all it is is it's cold calls, just like normal public polling agencies, but with small sample sizes. So it's anywhere between 50 and 150 in an individual seat. So margins of error are huge, but that's why it's a track, you see. So they do it every night and you can build up a picture of whether it's just a rogue poll or whether, in fact, there's something to see here. So, for example, let's say that Labor didn't think that they were under any threat in the seat of Bass, okay? They weren't focusing on Bass. I'm sure they are, but let's say they weren't. But then they go, oh, that's interesting. Scott Morrison's visited the seat of Bass twice or three times, they'll throw their track poll into Bass. And if it throws up a confident result, they might only do it for one or two nights. If it starts to show a problem, they might stick on it 
and then they might decide to recalibrate and send resources into that seat. So the track polling is essential to where resources are deployed and how they manoeuvre which seats they think they can hold. And the, the Federal Director of the Liberal Party and the National Secretary of the Labor Party who are running the respective campaigns, they're the ones that get full access to the track. It's kept pretty close because you don't want it to leak. And as a result, they use that to know how to target and where to send the leaders. And that's why you can then get a bit of a sense, particularly in the second half of the campaign, what the track must be saying because you're not going to have a scenario where you're going to waste your time sending your leader other than if you want to have that mirage that you're still in the fight. Yes, you might you... do it occasionally. Generally speaking, though, you're trying to send it to the seats you think you can hold. So what's, you know, historically, who, who's better at it? You know? Oh, good question. Uh, during the Howard years, definitely the Liberals because they had John Howard obviously running this, but it was Mark Texter uh, through his polling agency that did the track and was very, very good at it. Labor have... From the going right back to the Hawkeys, they were better at it. Texter caught up with John Howard. Now it's a bit line ball, to be honest. Labor are probably better at grassroots campaigning, but I don't know that their track is any better than what the Liberal parties are doing now. And the Prime Minister has a fellow called Euron Finkelstein in his office who actually used to head up Crosby Texter after Mark Texter left, uh, and he's dealing very closely with the track poll, as I understand it. Andrew Hurst. Uh, the federal director of the Liberal Party, he's right into this as well. So both sides are pretty good at it, to be honest, uh, and it's outsourced saw, as well. Because we saw in, in the 2016 US presidential election, it was clear that uh, the Trump campaign saw opportunities in some of those big blue-collar states. Uh, and Hillary missed it. And Hillary completely missed it. So he, yeah, kept the Rust on, Belt he kept on turning up in those Rust Belt states, which had been traditionally Democrat states, and they, 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 they never squared off against it. They thought, why is he going back to Wisconsin? Why is he going back oh, to Michigan? And it was a fail on all fronts, Hugh, because it was a fail by the Democrats. They missed it. Uh, it was a fail by the media. Uh, and it, you know, dare I say it, but it's, you know, the, the sort of, if you like, the decline of resources and, and the commercialisation of the media and its, its, its ability to, to turn a profit meant that the national media didn't see what was happening in those Rust Belt states as much as they otherwise might have if they had more resources on the ground. And, yeah, uh, Hillary's campaign was blindsided and the media were blindsided. She won the popular vote by millions, but Donald Trump's campaign targeted those Rust Belt states very effectively. I think that was a combination of professionally successful targeting, a la the track poll equivalent, but also naturally appealing, Trump appealing to those particular voters. So it was a real double miss by the, by the Hillary team. So we're now two weeks, give or take, until all this is over, the numbers are coming in What's your assessment right now as to where the race is? I think Bill Shorten is in the box seat. He should win. He's far enough in front, I think, that winning is the most likely scenario, that is to say a Labor victory. But how he wins is interesting. Scott Morrison has certainly won the campaign so far. It's a little bit superficial to talk about winning a campaign, but I do think having started as far behind as he did with all the problems that they had, he's done better on the campaign so far. The last two weeks might change that, but Bill Shorten started far enough in front that he should take out the election unless something dramatic happens towards the end. There was that sense that in that first week uh, uh, we looked at each other in the face and we kind of went, you know what, Bill Shorten could lose this. He, he definitely was out of sorts. Uh, I get the feeling that a slight flaw has gone underneath that now. So it, The debate, I think, helped with that. Yeah, look, I think you're right. I think Bill Shorten started 
Yeah, I actually think that the government's line wasn't a bad one about him thinking this was a coronation. You know, there was an assumption of victory and, you know, not wanting to talk out of school, but you could hear it when you'd talk to him uh, and he illustrated it in a conversation he had at the finish line of a, of a run with Arnold Schwarzenegger where he leant into him. Obviously Schwarzenegger didn't know who the hell he was and he's just said, I'm the future Prime Minister of Australia or I'm the next Prime Minister of Australia. There was that sense at the beginning, but then when things started to not go all his way... I'm talking about Bill Shorten, I think that he battened down the hatches, his team took a deep breath, they know that they're a fair way in front, they've got plenty of money, they've done well for the last five and a half years, pull it together. And I think they've done that. I think the debate helped. I think that the break uh, over Easter and then over Anzac Day as well probably helped them get back in the right frame of mind for the final three-week run to the finish line. So a powerful argument that Scott Morrison makes is it's a negative argument, they're very negative on on Labor, as, as Barnaby Joyce put it so eloquently, Labor, 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 Labor. But it's about uh, they can't run the economy and they're going to tax a lot more. And that's worked for them pretty well at the beginning part of the campaign. Can you keep running that line all the way through? Yeah, I don't think so. I I, I think that line is effective but it's so repetitive that it gets old and I don't know that it can last five weeks. You know, it's one thing to hit an opposition hard about the amount of tax or the lack of costings that they've got, works a treat. It'd be better for Morrison if he had a few other attack dogs to help him with that, but who does he turn to? You know, he's he's got an ineffective team around him. He has to do it all himself. He can't go to Dutton. He's unpopular. He certainly can't go to Barnaby Joyce. So he has to do it himself, but it gets old. And I've got to say one thing, though. I went this week and spoke to some first-time voters. They're university students. They've never voted before, and... Some have got strong views, particularly on climate change. That's it's, it's the single issue that was coming up, the university students. But a number of them had no idea. They'd given no thought. Some of them admitted even now they couldn't name the Prime Minister. So when you talk about an attack line getting old, I'm thinking that there's also people out there who will vote who are still not even up remotely to the starting line of knowing who the Prime Minister is, let alone the issues, let alone zoning into the kind of arguments are being made. So maybe those arguments are still there to oh, Lee, I, to I, win I, votes. I, I certainly think for those, if you like, undecided or switched off voters that only switch on late, uh, certainly the messages continue to work for them. But, but they're probably coming at it from a different perspective anyway. You know, that, that sort of voter doesn't tend to be as easily won over, in my view, by those attack ads. It's, it's, it's you know, that, it's the more sort of seasoned voter but not ideological voter who is won over by those attack ads, in my view at least, the first-time voter uh, that turns up or, or the undecided voter who only decides very, very late, uh, by the time they switch on, you've had a whole host of things that are out there and you know, they, they tend to vote on instinct, you know, so they're, they're, they're more likely to vote, even though they're last-minute voters, they're more likely to vote about the whole three-year milieu of what they can kind of recall. And what do they in broad brush recall? They recall a government in chaos that probably deserves uh, to be punished unless... They remember the campaign without having really paid attention to it as this five weeks where the opposition just got eviscerated because of its costings and its tax. I don't think Bill Shorten's copying it to that extent. I do think that the government, in a broader sense, has appeared a bit chaotic because of all the changes of Prime Minister. So I think most of those last-minute swinging voters are more likely to punish the government rather than punish the opposition. Some people have said to me... Quite a few people said to me that what they feel is missing is someone. Someone said there are no heroes left in Australian politics, 
there's no one with an overarching positive message, an inspiring vision for the future, etc. You certainly wouldn't put a cape on either Scott Morrison or Bill Shorten. You'd you have a few moth holes in it, that's for sure. Are we going to see any of that in the final stages or are we going to see just a flailing of negativity? I, I think... And if we don't see this, then that tells us that things aren't going as well for the opposition as you might expect. I think that we're going to see at the end Bill Shorten try to go positive at the very end because he is trying to become prime ministerial in anticipation of. But I think we'll see Scott Morrison continue to be hard negative because they're unlikely to be in a winning position, so the negative politicking works. So he might as well keep going for it to try to claw back as many votes as he can. PVO, fascinating as always. Good to chat. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.